This is the Become an Unstoppable Woman podcast with Lindsay Elizabeth Preston, episode 183, Beyond Leaning In. Welcome to the Become an Unstoppable Woman podcast, the show for barrier-breaking women who are ready to shed their good girl layers so they can own their power and live deeply fulfilling lives instead. I'm your host, Lindsay Elizabeth. I'm a leadership coach to women all over the world. And I've lived through enough in life to know that easier doesn't always equate to better. We can't fear the fire, we must learn to become it. And on this show, I'll teach you how to do just that. So join me and my guests as we challenge you to shed society's bullshit systems and beliefs to become even more of the strong, resilient, and powerful woman you were meant to be. As you listen, trust your intuition to take what you love and leave the rest. The thoughts and perspectives I share on the show are my own with the lens of my lived experience as a privileged, white, cis, straight, able-bodied woman. And while that informs my experience and perspectives, I wholeheartedly believe living a deeply fulfilling life is possible to every woman. If I ever say anything harmful, I'm open to doing better and hearing your feedback. My goal is for you to leave this show feeling empowered, inspired, and ready to share this show with every woman you know so they too can create a life that lights them the fuck up from the inside. Are you ready to get started? Let's go. Hi there, beautiful soul. Woo, today's episode is a good one. I have Melanie Ho here, and she is talking about Beyond Leaning In. It's her new book, and it's all about gender equality and what organizations are up against. So if you remember Sheryl Sandberg's book from 2013, it's called Leaning In. It was all about gender equality in the workplace. Melanie is taking that book to the next level. So she's going to tell you all about it in this interview. And it's interesting because Melanie's book is written in a different way than you may expect. So get ready for that. And Melanie and I just talked through in this interview all the different ways in which gender inequality shows up, especially at work. So you can start to spot it even more and start to show yourself even more grace when you're like, what the heck is going on around here? And you realize, oh, all right, this is what's going on. It's gender inequality, right? So just to give you a little bit about Melanie, she is a speaker, multimedia creator, and organizational consultant who has been described by Film Daily as one of the most empowering authors and visual artists right now. Her award-winning debut book, Beyond Leading End, Gender Equality and What Organizations Are Up Against, has been acclaimed by Kirkus Reviews as an engaging evolution of Sheryl Sandberg's lean-in mantra. Over the past 20 plus years, Melanie has delivered over a thousand presentations to a wide range of audience sizes and types. Her experience includes facilitating retreats for chief executives, addressing thousand plus person audiences, and appearing on NPR, CBS, and NBC. She speaks on a variety of topics, including women in leadership, diversity, equity, and inclusion, the future of education, and the use of creativity in the arts and business. She is also the founder of Strategic Imagination, a firm dedicated to drawing on the power of the imaginative arts, i.e. comics, theater, fiction, to help businesses and nonprofits achieve transformational change. She's worked with organizations ranging 
from small startups to multi-billion dollar global conglomerates to leading university. Melanie previously served as SVP and GM of research of EAB Global, an education technology and services firm headquartered in Washington, DC. She led a team of 100 plus consultants that provided management advice to over 1,500 universities worldwide, including 90% of the US News Top 100. So Melanie knows her shit, (laughs) right? She's done a lot and she delivers in this interview. So without further ado, here it is. Enjoy. All right, Miss Melanie. So excited to have you on the show. I'm so excited to be here. Yay. I was just saying before we hit record, I've been divulging all the things about you and I cannot wait for this conversation today. So I want to start with your new book, Beyond Leaning In, Gender Equality and What Organizations Are Up Against. And just tell us a synopsis about what the book is about. So it is about the challenges that professional women face as we advance in leadership positions. But what I hope is fun and unique about the book is that it's a book you'll find in the business or social science or women's studies sections, but it actually is told as a novel. The story of a CEO named Deborah, she has, she's a baby boomer. She has smashed those glass ceilings. She has fought for women her entire career. And so she's surprised and caught off guard when she's finding that at her company, women are departing at higher rates than men. They are less engaged on the engagement survey. It's sort of a mystery story as Deborah tries to understand what she's missing when she's trying to understand the younger generation of women who are rising into leadership positions. They keep biting their tongues. And so she's got to figure out what's going on in order to really save her company. And we go back and forth between the perspective of seven different characters, Deborah, but also female characters, male characters, across generations, up and down the organizational hierarchy, you know, corporate ladder, so to speak, and get a sense really of the different workplace dynamics. Wow. Okay. I got an idea that you wrote it as a novel, but now I'm really soaking it in. So what made you write it in this way, Melanie? Yeah, it was one of those things where I think for a long time, so many different pieces came together that led me to wanting it to wanting to write it as a novel. So when I was in high school, I was really obsessed with uh, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, and uh, which inspired food safety, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which helped people understand slavery. And just the idea that novels weren't just about art and weren't just about entertainment. They could actually help educate people. I went on to get my undergrad degree, ended up designing my own major, looking at novels and films compared to advertisements and news media, and just all these different ways that messages can help shape our ideology and how we think about society and the world around us. Got my PhD in English. My dissertation was called Useful Fiction. I looked at novels in the early 20th century. I would say like the 1920s are a lot like the 2020s. They're just so confusing, so much going on, rapid change. And people turn to novels as a way to help them navigate day-to-day life. And so I, I kind of, for a lot of my life, really just been fascinated at how art could help us think about things in a different way. I then took a big pivot, went from my PhD in English into the corporate world, ran a consulting practice that served college and university presidents at the um, very corporate environment. You know, we were on the NASDAQ and then bought by private equity, all that boring stuff. And in a way, I'd kind of forgotten about those interests. They were kind of in the back of my mind, but I sort of pushed them aside. And then in the last, I don't know, five years, things just started to 
fall into place and remind me of those previous interests. I was doing work with university presidents who were trying to figure out how to come up with bolder strategies and really push their teams to think about new visions for higher education. And I started reading about how Fortune 500 companies hire science fiction writers and comic book artists to help them. And so I started experimenting. My team began building these really futuristic scenarios, drawing on tools from science fiction to help colleges and universities do that. I began reading this, there's sort of a, um, I call it like a small but mighty collection of business books written as novels. There's not that many of them, but I started finding the ones that existed, got really excited about that, started writing my book as a novel because I felt like the challenges that women face at work. There's so much great research on it, but nobody was really reading it. And my hope was, well, if it's a novel, people will not only pick up the book, maybe they'll finish it because they get into the story. And I wanted to have something that would help spark conversations between genders and generations and get men involved in the conversation. And so I have a lot of male characters and all of that just kind of, I don't know, was percolating in my mind, tugging at me. Then during the pandemic, I had this moment of, what am I doing? I loved so many parts of my job, but I felt like I had this mission that I hadn't yet, that I'd only just begun and needed to return back to. Wow. That was kind of a circuitous explanation. No, I love it. I mean, just, I think about it from a brain perspective of like how stories stick with us more Mm -hmm. than the facts, right? And keep us engaged and entertained. And even just you telling the synopsis of the book, I'm like, oh yeah, I would read that versus I have all these books on my shelf over here of all these stats and facts about different things of women. And that's great. And Mm -hmm. it's great to refer to those. But like you said, you pick it up, you start to read it. And in time, it's like, at the end of your day, do you want to keep reading a book about stats and figures? Or do you want to read somebody who's actually in the story experiencing it, which also allows you to start to see how it happens in real life versus reading these stats and thinking, hmm, have I experienced that or not? I'm not quite sure. Exactly. There's great research by psychologists on how reading novels can help build not just empathy, but an understanding of the internal workings of somebody else's mind. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And I love when I hear from readers who will say, oh, it's like you were in my head. I've experienced that. And I hadn't even quite realized that I hadn't quite processed it. Or they'll say to me, oh, this other character, that's my friend, that's my colleague. And I didn't quite understand them. And now I do. Yeah, so cool. Okay, so I have to ask, in regards to the title of Beyond Leaning In, were you trying to play off the book Leaning In, I'm assuming? I definitely was. I yeah. definitely was. And people will often say, well, are you trying to pick a fight with Sheryl Sandberg? What does she think? And I was like, Sheryl Sandberg doesn't know who I am. <laughs> um, and I think that's a lot of people just want to imagine drama, right? And they right, especially around want- women. Yes, exactly. They yeah. want the narrative of women fighting with one another. And I, I, the book is called Beyond Leaning In, not Against Leaning In. The point is that we have to do more. Sheryl Sandberg in Lean In, it was published in 2013. She was really specific in the book. She says, I'm not trying to solve the entire problem of gender gaps at work. This is one slice of the pie. But I think what happened after that was published was that Employers like, and not just employers, I think society likes really simple solutions, right? You want a phrase you can put on a PowerPoint slide and say, okay, this will fix the problem and lean in provided exactly that. It was two words and employers were able to say then anytime any challenge came up for women at work, I found at my workplace, I talked to so many women who said the same thing. The answer was always lean in. And instead of looking at, okay, what's more difficult 
for women to lean in? Why aren't women leaning in? How is our confidence even getting whittled away by the way that we're treated differently at work? How are we rewarded unequally when we lean in? Um, how are there different penalties when we lean in? And none of that was being looked at to the extent it needed to it in a lot of workplaces because there was just this emphasis on, okay, the problem is women themselves, not the problem is systems and culture. Yeah. Which brings up these amazing comics that you make, Melanie, that I'm looking at on your Instagram right now. And I want to bring some of them up because you're tapping on this point specifically in a lot of these. Like the first one, women are constantly told to talk louder, interrupt, take up space like men are socialized to do. Are men told to listen and amplify others' voices like women are socialized to do? And so that brings up to me, lean into what I, I mean, I read it years and years ago, but I remember one of my takeaways, you know, like lean in feels like very masculine and like, mm-hmm. yeah, like, like, yep. like you say here, like talk loud or speak up, right? And there is power in that. And I think some women need to hear that and lean more into that masculine energy. But so many women that are already pretty successful in the workplace that want to take it next level, they're already in that masculine energy. And so leaning more into that actually takes them out of their feminine. Mm -hmm. What I've seen with my coaching clients who've done that, what happens then is they feel unfulfilled at work. They come home, the power dynamics are off in their marriage because they're like beating ass all day, basically. (laughs) And health problems even arise, especially around their hormones. Right. Anything to say to that, Melanie? Yes, absolutely. And and we often feel inauthentic doing that. I remember having a boss that the way to interact with him and be heard was essentially I had to figure out how to modulate my voice exactly. Right. Because if you come in too strong as a woman, you actually get penalized for that in a way that that men don't get penalized. We kind of have to walk this perfect tightrope, right? This perfect gold. I have also have a comic about the Goldilocks dilemma of you can't be too aggressive, but you can't be uh, too communal. And so I would sort of start talking at one volume and with every progressive sentence, I would raise my voice. I don't know if decibel is the right phrase, but like, you know, I would raise my voice a little bit, then a little bit more, and then a little bit more, you know, perfectly timed, like when I would say his name to emphasize my interruption. And it's this dance of, okay, how do I interrupt and get my voice in there? And part of me thought, well, this is a game and I'm going to play it. But I just, I felt so inauthentic. That wasn't me. That wasn't like how I like to bring my energy and how I feel like I can best contribute and be in an environment. Yeah. I'm so glad you bring up that word inauthentic. That's a big word we use in my coaching world. Yeah. I mean, and here's what I want to offer there too, is that, you know, I always say in a lot of my messaging too, is like, learn the game so you can play the game. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's also, it becomes exhausting. Yeah. And, and learn the game so you, you got to know what the game is. Right. And then women can decide, is this a game I want to play? Is this a game I can change? Mm-hmm. Is this a place that's not right for me because I don't either want to play it or I can't change it? Yeah. Well, and then on that note too, you know, it is powerful to figure out the game and to you know, play the game to your advantage in a non-manipulative way. But do you have, do you see men having to do that? Like how much brain space we're taking up to figure out the game and learning how to play the game? Exactly. I mean, everyone has to play the game at work. And a lot of the advice I give to women, I would give to men too. It's just the extent of additional pressure that maybe if a man has to play the game one, you know, one amount, one X 
a woman has feels like she has to play at 5x in order to get the same results. Mm. But also that there's this constant mental chatter in our heads, right? Because, oh, if if I say this in the meeting the wrong way, am I going to be perceived as bitchy? And the man doesn't have to think about that because even if they're perceived as being too aggressive, it'll be excused later, right? Oh, yeah. Now, he was a little bit of a bully in that meeting, but he's really smart and he brings in the dollars and, you know, he's the kind of guy you'd like to get a beer with. And that aggressiveness, I mean, that just makes him interesting, right? Whereas all these excuses will make for male bad behavior that we don't make for female bad behavior in meetings. And, and everybody of all genders is, is equally culpable for these biases that we hold. And so, yeah, there's just this extra layer of chatter we have in our heads all the time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So I'm curious with your research, what do you see as the biggest ways in which women are held back so that gender equality can happen? I know it's a big question. (laughs) Such a big question. (laughs) Great question. I mean, I think there's a few things. A lot of it is in what I call the mental autocomplete And that's the way I like to talk about unconscious biases, because I think the phrase unconscious bias, it often doesn't resonate with people because we have such a negative perception of the word bias, like nobody wants to feel biased. And I think of it as this autocomplete. It's just like, I remember when the iPhone first rolled out the autocomplete emojis, you know, Mm. you type in the happy and there's the happy face. And I, a few times I typed in words like CEO or doctor. And it would give me a bunch of male emojis, right? It's like, you can't have a female emoji for a CEO or doctor. And they eventually corrected that. But it's a lot easier to reprogram a iPhone than it is a human being. And just since childhood, right? If in children's books, there are more leader characters that are men or boys. And if we're hearing messages. Uh, one example I talk a lot about, a friend of mine told me the story of how on the playground, she was she was there with her young son and she was watching a group of slightly older kids taking a tennis lesson. And they were done with the lesson. And the coach said to all of the kids, you got to clean up all the tennis balls. And if you do so, I don't know, you get a snack. And all the girls were diligently picking up the tennis balls and all the boys were goofing off, clowning around with the coach. And my friend said what was surprising about this not was not just that it happened, but that the parents who are the millennials, consider themselves woke, I'm sure, were all just laughing about it, right? That boys will be boys. And so I just think about all these messages we receive since we're a little kid, they keep getting reinforced in the workplace. Every time you're introduced to colleagues and it's like, Chad is great with data. Haley's got a great smile. She's the glue of the office and they do the exact same job, right? Mm. All of these messages are going into our programming, that same programming, like at, like the iPhone, that when you see CEO, you think male. Mm-hmm. And that is, it is so hard to disentangle us from that. And so to me, that's kind of the, the number one thing is just realizing how ingrained it is and how it's constantly reinforced every single day. And we have to really work hard against that programming. Yeah. Well, and it's everywhere. I mean, I have an 11-year-old daughter, and I will just tell you from this week alone, I can spot many instances of gender bias in her day-to-day life. 
one of which they had student council elections. She's in sixth grade. And so they said, we're going to elect two representatives, a boy and a girl. So the girls, of course, there's like six of them running there. Boy, there's one. Mm-hmm. So he automatically, he just goes in half asses his speech. Yep. And then the girls have to like fight for this one position. Right. Wow. I know. Right. Why can't you just pick the that two is most so qualified? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I even think about her teachers. She has one coach this year, which is like a new thing for the middle school years. And I, I don't know about you growing up, Melanie, but anytime we had a coach, it was like, oh, that's a blow off. Like mm-hmm. it was not. And but yet he it's so funny, too, because in his class, he has all these females come in to supplement his class. And I think I've never had that. But none of the female teachers mm-hmm. have that benefit. Right. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's like that mediocre kind of. Yep white boy behavior here's what we kind of call it but yeah (laughs) but yeah so yeah it's everywhere and so then what happens we go to work we're working twice as hard i read some stats somewhere and i don't know where it's from but it said something like women have to be two and a half times smarter than males Mm -hmm. to be seen at the same level have you heard that said as well there's a lot of research i i can't remember that exact one but on the prove it again phenomenon that Mm. and i have a, a comic called prove it again versus bet with that when it comes to say promotion discussions, men are promoted based on potential. So it might be something like, okay, you know, Joe is not that experienced, but he did a great job on that project. And so let's bet with him. And about the woman, it'll be the exact same words, but it'll be like, Laura did a great job on that project, but she's inexperienced. So let's, we, you know, let's wait and see more. And it's the exact same, you can imagine the exact same resume and yeah. just the way we talk about different order. And there's that, but, and the, but plays a different role. Yeah. Okay. So let me soak that in. I saw that in one of your comics. So men are promoted more on potential mm-hmm. versus women. Women are having to prove it more. Prove it again. Yeah. And, you know, I think at a lot of organizations, it's, it's having managed a lot of people and been in so many promotion discussions, it's always hard to figure out when to promote people. Is it, and different organizations have different philosophies. Do you promote someone based on, you think that they'll be good at the job based on early returns, or do they actually have to show they can do elements of the job before they do it? And there's a lot of good reasons to go either way. There's a lot of great reasons actually to make sure that somebody has at least shown they can do some parts of the next job before you get promoted into it. Otherwise, we have what's called the Peter Principle, which is this like funny name for a management theory. I'm going to like dork out on management stuff right now. It's like this management theory that people get promoted to their level of incompetence and that people get promoted based on the fact that they're good at their job. They get to the next job. They might not actually be good at it, or the next job or the next job. And then eventually they get to the point where they actually can't do the job anymore, but they are allowed to stay in it because there's something they still know how to do based on like what initially got them promoted. Mm. And so that's often the reason why managers will say, oh, actually someone does need to prove it. Yeah. <laughs> because otherwise we're going to have someone who's not good at their job. And we've all had managers who shouldn't be there and that's not very pleasant. Yeah. But the problem is that the, the standards are unequally applied. Like if if the standard is prove it again, then that should apply to everybody. If the standard is bet with, that should apply to everybody. But often this is where we see a double standard. Yeah. And this is why, again, people need to check their biases. 
yep. and do the work because it, I noticed it when I started doing this work years ago and just little things that I would do. Like we have Sonics here. I don't know if y'all have Sonics, but it's like a drive up place where you go get fast food kind of thing. And so they bring this food to your car. There's always kind of this back and forth. Should you tip them or not? Cause they're just kind of bringing this fast food to your car. And for a while I'd always tip them, but then, you know, we went to kind of like a no cash world for the mm -hmm. most part. Mm -hmm. And so you didn't yeah. always have a cash tip. And so I'd always have women come or girls come and bring me the food. And one day I had a boy come and I immediately had this instinct of, oh, I got to get him a tip. I got to look around mm -hmm. my car. Mm -hmm. And I remember just stopping myself and thinking, why? Why do I feel like, and I started unpacking that. I was like, oh, because we're taught, you know, men need to provide, men need to be, you know, the money maker and all that yeah. stuff. But a girl doing it, it's like, oh, no big deal. Right? Yeah. So there's so much to unpack in all of that. So with that, Melanie, I do kind of want to discuss, you know, how have you done that work and checked mm -hmm. your own biases and looked at those things in your life? Yeah. I mean, we're so wired. I think just knowing all of the things is helpful because it is, it's that first step. It's that first step. So if I were writing, say a performance review about somebody, and I think I really do value leadership qualities and team building and all of that, but there's so much research that women get valued for all of the things that are communal and that men get valued for like the hard skills, like data. And I definitely know that when I was sitting and making sure that I was assessing my staff accurately at the end of the year, I would have to think and say, okay, am I, I'm talking about the team building that the female colleague is doing, and that's valuable. It's something I care about for myself, but am I equally paying attention to and talking about all of the other skills that she's bringing to the table? And with, and, and same with my male direct reports, I have a lot of male, call, had a lot of male colleagues who were great team builders as well, but no one ever really talked about them in that vein because they weren't expected to be. And it wasn't seen as something that men do. Mm -hmm. And so that was probably where I would often just make sure I was checking myself would be things like performance reviews, um, letters of recommendation. There's great research there too on just different phrases that are used for men and women in letters of recommendation and a checklist that I can't remember there's a university that actually put up a great checklist on just biased letters of recommendation. And so when I'm writing letters of recommendation, I actually go to the checklist and I just, just as a double check. And luckily I think the more that I've done and the more that I use the checklist, the less I need it. Yeah. Um, but I still think it's really important whether you're writing a letter of recommendation, whether you're writing your performance review, anything like that, that's assessing people that we just make sure that we're going through and checking all of our biases. That's so smart, Molly. I never thought of it that way of like every time you're doing something, looking what could be my biases here in that. That's such an attainable way too, because I always think about it this big way of like, oh, we need to have all this coaching done and all this training done and all the things, which is great, but also we can just make these little changes one by one. Don't you think? I do think, I, I think that, the big things are often just the sum of all the little things. At one point, I wanted to call my book A Thousand Everyday Cuts mm. because it felt like it was th those thousands of everyday things that we don't even realize. And that, you know, I, I try to be extra careful about even small things like, and this is still hard for me, like I always say guys instead of, I don't know, plural, just people. Mm-hmm. 
And it has taken so much work for me to not just say, and it, guys, and it's such a little thing, but it's those little things that add up and matter. Yes. I'm so glad you bring that up. I am so anti being called a guy and I'm on my husband and my daughter about it all the time. They'll say guys, and I've gotten to a point where I just don't even acknowledge it. Yeah. <laughs> and then they'll catch it and they'll say, you know, girls or women or people or whatever. I'm like, oh yeah, you're talking to me because yeah, it gets so annoying and they don't realize every time it's just this little bitty hit of like, mm -hmm. I'm not a guy. And so I need to act more like a guy to be included and all the things. So yeah, I'm so or, yeah that, because no one ever goes around and just says like, hey, girls, when they're talking to a mixed group, unless yeah. it's meant as an insult. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then when people say, oh, well, it's not about gender. And then you ask them directly, well, how many guys have you slept with? You'll know guys means male. <laughs> it's a gender thing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Okay. So, oh, Melanie, where do I want to go next with this? I feel like we've covered so much. Is there anything that's coming up for you that you want to cover? We haven't. Oh, I feel like I could talk to you all day about these things. I know. I mean, I think just back to the, it starts young. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's something that we just need to keep reminding ourselves is that it starts young and that both for just when we're working and talking with younger folks and kids, but also as we understand like why it's so ingrained and why we don't have to feel bad about the fact that we're biased. Like we should feel bad and that we should want to change it. But I actually think that the reason why we don't have open conversations about any kind of bias, whether gender or racial or any other identity, is because there's this guilt, like nobody wants to acknowledge that we have these biases within us, especially often when it's biased against like the group that we're in, <laughs> right? Yeah. And again, that's why I like to talk about the autocomplete and programming. I think the more that conversations like this, where we're sort of admitting that, yes, this happens to the best of us, even those of us who are really committed to the work and are aware of them, we'll still have these moments where that programming kind of takes over. Yeah. And just being able to call ourselves out on it, to have psychological safety in our communities so that we can discuss it with one another. I think that's how we, we turn things around. Yeah. And I'm so glad you bring that up because, you know, I talk about it a lot in my show with my clients and stuff, but say someone pops in and listens to this episode or just needs this reminder. It's not our fault. We have these biases. Yeah. I had someone describe it in a way of like, it's just like it's in our water. Mm -hmm. You know, it's everywhere. And it's so unfortunate because I'm, I'm in Texas, Melanie. And so, so many schools are thinking about implementing these different, gosh, what are they calling them? Those programs, like um, basically like bias programs, mm -hmm. forget the technical term for it. But, you know, and all these schools are like, no, we're not going to implement these things because we don't want one race to feel like, you know, guilty for being quote unquote, better than the other ones and things like that. And I'm like, that's not the point. <laughs> like nobody needs guilt. And if you actually sat down and did the work, nobody's wanting to point guilt at you. Yeah. We're just wanting to say, hey, here's the, here's the systems. We're all part of it. Even those that are at the top still really don't even fully benefit from it. Like let's think about white straight males. They have to, you know, not be able to feel their feelings. Mm -hmm. They have to be able to perform at these high levels in some ways. 
And yeah, it's just like, it's, it's nobody's fault. Nobody's trying to make you feel bad. And then alternatively, if you're feeling these feelings, you're experiencing bias or say for a lot of women or people of color, they have, you know, what's called imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. right? And so I'll have clients sometimes of like, oh, what's wrong with me? Why can't I be confident? And it's like, well, from a young age, yep. you were taught, you know, not directly most times that like, this was the way to be and you're not that way. And that's okay. Right. Yes, exactly. And, and like every single time from a young age, when the girls are only praised for being cute and having a, you know, pretty pink dress and the boys are praised for their athletic ability and being smart and being clever and being funny and all of that, that's, that's where, so no wonder women and people of color often have more imposter syndrome when we get into the workplace. Yeah, totally. Totally. Okay. Thank you so much for all this, Melanie. You dropped so much goodness. I can't wait to read your book. So can you tell everybody how to find it, how to get it, and how to follow you? Yep. Yeah. So my website is just my name, www.melanieho.com. And you can get to my Instagram there, melanieho13, where you'll find all my comics. Um, My other social links are there. Contact me anywhere. I try my best to reply to every single message. If I don't reply, it's like it got lost in that little Instagram tab that I I forget to click on. Um, But definitely love to hear from people. You can find my book, Beyond Leaning In, on my website, on Amazon, um, everywhere books are sold. It's a paperback, but also an ebook and an audio book, which I know a lot of folks like to listen. Got a great, amazing voice actress to read the book so um it's a lot of fun to listen to also cool i can't wait i'm gonna do an audiobook of it i think thank you so much melanie it was such a pleasure to have you and thank you again for dropping all your wisdom today yeah thanks so much for having me Thanks for tuning into the Become an Unstoppable Woman podcast. If you haven't left a review for the show yet, what are you waiting for? Your reviews give us the feedback and momentum we need to continue to produce this incredible free content for you. Plus, when you leave a review for the show, you get a copy of my book for free. Simply take a picture of your review and submit it to lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y, epreston.com forward slash one zero zero and you'll receive a digital copy of my wisdom from the first hundred episodes book this book is a study guide for life enjoy and of course share this show with your friends i believe every woman can create a deeply fulfilling life that lights them the fuck up from the inside the more you help others succeed the more you help yourself so share share, share this show. And I'll see you soon and your friends back on the show next week for another eye-opening episode. Until then, keep rocking it.